Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, reading today from the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. Again, I remind you that this is available along with a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of other things on PuritanDownloads.com, Stillwater's Revival Books. You ask them about the Puritan hard, hard drive and you will and be amazed at what kind of uh, information is on that hard drive. When you order it, you'll find this that I'm reading to you now from right there, and you can read it yourself. Um, but for our purposes, we are now going to read the last section of the last chapter of the second volume out of four volumes. In other words, we're about halfway there at this point. Uh, another little note here. I think uh, after today, which... By the time this is coming to you will be Sunday. Uh, during that week, I will not be doing any uh, Spurgeon. I'll stay off of Sermon Audio for that week and hurry up with my other project that I'm working on. We're doing a commentary on the book of Jude, and I do hope that you'll be able to enjoy that soon. And uh, But I'm going to double time on that one this week. Also this Friday, uh, the 19th of June, if you happen to be thinking about it. It was 186 years ago on that date, June 19, that a Mr. Charles Spurgeon was born. Yeah, that's his birthday, June 19, 1834, I believe, if I recollect what we've been talking about here many times, 1834. We're in 1860 right now. He's on a trip. He's on a trip throughout Europe, uh, the continent, as they call it, from England. And uh, finding the Lord in a lot of these places. After leaving Brussels and getting a distant glimpse of the lion mound of Waterloo, he says, We hurried down to Namur and steamed along the Meuse, that beautiful river which is said to be an introduction to the Rhine, but which, to my mind, is a fair rival to it. It quite spoiled me for the Rhine. Everywhere on each side there were new phases of beauty and sweet little pictures which shone in the sunshine like small but exquisite gems. It was not one vast Kohinoor diamond. It was not sublimity mingling its awe with loveliness, such as you would see in Switzerland with its majestic mountains, but a succession of beautiful pearls threaded on the silver string of that swiftly flowing river. It is so narrow and shallow that as the steamboat glides along, it drives up a great wave upon the banks on either side. In some parts along the river, there were signs of mineral wealth, and the people were washing the ironstone at the water's edge to separate the one from the earth, or the ore from the earth. One thing which I saw here I must mention, as it is a type of prevailing evil in Belgium, when there were barges of ironstone to be unloaded, the women bore the heavy baskets upon their backs. If there were coals or bricks to be carried, the women did it. They carried everything, and their lords and masters sat still and seemed to enjoy seeing them at work, hoped it might do them good, while they themselves were busily engaged in the important occupation of smoking their pipes. When we came to a landing place, if the rope was to be thrown off so that the steamboat might be secured, there was always a woman to run and seize it, and there stood a big lazy fellow to give directions as to how she should do it. We joked with each other upon the possibility of getting our wives to do the like, but, but indeed it is scarcely a joking matter 
to see poor women compelled to work like slaves, as if they were only made to support their husbands in idleness. They were fagged and worn, but they looked more fully developed than the men, seemed to be more masculine. If I had been one of those women, and I had got a little bit of a husband sitting there smoking his pipe, if there's a law in Belgium that gives a woman two months for beating her husband, I fear I should have earned the penalty. Anyhow, I, I would have said to him, I'm very much obliged to you for doing me the honor of marrying me, but at the same time, if I'm to work and earn your living and my own too, you will smoke your pipe somewhere else. Fact is, my dear friends, to come to something that may be worth our thinking about, employment for women is greatly needed in our country, and the want of it is a very great evil. But it is not so much to be deplored as that barbarity which dooms women to sweep the streets, to till the fields, to carry heavy burdens, and to be the drudges of the family. We greatly need that watchmaking, printing, telegraphing, bookselling, and other indoor occupations should be more freely open to female industry. But may heaven save our poor women from the position of their continental sisters. The gospel puts woman where she should be, gives her an honorable position in the house and in the church. But where women become the votaries of superstition, they will soon be made the burden bearers of society. Our best feelings revolt at the idea of putting fond, faithful, and affectionate women to oppressive labor. Our mothers, our sisters, our wives, our daughters are much too honorable in our esteem to be treated otherwise than as dear companions for whom it shall be our delight to live and labor. We went next to a sweet little village called Chaufontaine, surrounded with verdant hills and so truly rural that one could forget that there was such a place as a busy, noisy, distracting world. Here we found the villagers at work making gun barrels with old-fashioned tilt hammers. Here, for the first time, we saw industrious men. Talk about long hours in England. These blacksmiths rise at four o'clock in the morning, and I do not know when they leave off. Only this I know, that we passed by them very late and found them still hard at work at the blazing forge, hammering away at the gun barrels, welding the iron into a tube, working almost without clothing, the sweat pouring down them and mingling with the black and soot of their faces. The real workers on the continent seem to be always toiling and never appear to stop at all except at dinner time. Then you may go to the shop and knock until your arm aches, but there's nobody to sell you anything. They're all having their dinner. That's a most important operation, and they do not like to come out even to wait upon a customer. I knocked a long time at a door in Zurich where I wanted to buy a print, but the man had gone to his dinner, so I had to wait till he had finished. That breaking up of the day, I, I have no doubt, tends, after all, to shorten the hours of labor. But there is work to be done in the villages of the continent by the Early Closing Association. It will be well if they can persuade people that they can do quite as much if they work fewer hours. In the country villages, science appears to be very backward. And my friend declared that he saw the linchpin of a wagon which weighed two pounds. I never saw such a huge linchpin anywhere else. And as to the carts and wagons, they were like racks put on a couple of pair of wheels, and in every case, five times as heavy as they needed to be. And thus the horses have a load to begin with before the cart is loaded. 
on the continent, I think they have in some towns and cities made progress superior to our own. But in the rural parts of any country you like to choose, you would find them far behind our village population. The intelligence of those countries is centered in the large towns, and it does not radiate and spread its healthy influence in the rural districts so swiftly as in our own beloved land. It is well to see progress even in these social matters, because as men advance in arts and commerce, it often happens that they are brought into contact with other lands, and so the word of God becomes more widely known. I believe every steam engine, every railroad, every steamboat, and every threshing machine to be a deadly enemy to ignorance. And what is ignorance but the cornerstone of superstition? As everybody who goes on the continent visits Cologne, so did we. But I must say that Cologne, that, that, I, that I have, say, of Cologne, that I have a more vivid recollection of what I smelt than of what I saw. The Cologne odor is more impressive than the eau de Cologne <laughs> perfume. I had heard Albert Smith say he believed there were 83 distinct bad smells in Cologne. And in my opinion, he understands the number, understated it for every yard presented something more terrible than we had ever smelled before. Better to pay our heavy taxes for drainage than live in such odors. Our filthy friend, the Thames River, is as sweet as rose water when compared with Cologne or Frankfurt. Hear this, ye grumblers, and be thankful that you are not worse off than you are. We went down the Rhine, and it was just a repetition of what we saw down the Meuse with the addition of castles and legends. My want of taste is, is no doubt the cause of my disappointment upon seeing this river. The lakes of Westmoreland and Cumberland and the locks of Scotland fairly rival the Rhine and are of much the same character. Go and see for yourselves. You will not repent it. We went across to Frankfurt and Heidelberg and then to Baden-Baden. Let me say a few words about Baden. I went to see the uh, gaming table there. It was, without exception, the most mournful sight I ever looked upon. The conversation house at Baden is a gorgeous building. Wealth could not make it more splendid than it is. All the luxuries that can be gathered from the very ends of the earth are lavished there. It's a fairy palace more like the fantastic creation of a dream than sober, substantial fact. You are freely admitted, no charges made, whilst the most beautiful music that can be found waits to charm your ear. Every place of amusement is free. Even the public library is free. You ask me how all this is supported? Well, to the left of the building, there are two rooms for gaming. I'm assuming that means gambling. There is a long table and a great crowd standing around it. The seats are all full, and there sit four men in the middle with long rakes, pulling money this way and that way, and shoving it here and there. I hardly ever saw such a mass of money except upon a banker's counter. There are long piles of gold done up in marked quantities, and there are also heaps of silver money. You see a young man come in. He does not seem like a gambler. He puts down a half-Napoleon as a mere joke. In a minute it's shoveled away. He's lost his money. He walks around again, puts down another piece of gold. This time he wins, and he has two. By and by he'll play more deeply, and the day will probably come when he will stake his all and lose it. You may see women sitting there all night playing for high stakes. 
Some people win, but everybody must lose sooner or later, for the chances are dreadfully against any man who plays. The bank clears an enormous sum every year. I'm afraid to mention the amount, lest I should be thought to exaggerate. What staring eyes, what covetous looks, what fiery faces I saw there, and what multitudes go into that place happy and return to curse the day of their birth. I had the sorrow of seeing some fools play. I saw young men who lost so much that they had hardly enough to take them back to England. Such is the infatuation that I am not surprised when spectators are carried away by the torrent. There are some who defend the system. I hold it to be fraught with more deadly evils than anything else that could be invented, even by Satan himself. I saw an old, respectable-looking man put down ten pounds. He won, and he received twenty. He put down the twenty. He won again. He had forty. He put down the forty and received eighty. He put down the eighty, took up one hundred and sixty pounds. Then he put it all in his pocket and walked away as calmly as possible. The man would lose money by that transaction because he would go back on the morrow, probably play till he would sell the house that covers his children's heads, pawn the very bed from under his wife. The worst thing that can happen to a man who gambles is to win. If you lose, it serves you right, and there's hope that you'll repent of your folly. If you win, the devil will have you in his net so thoroughly that escape will be well-nigh impossible. I charge every young man here, above all things, never have anything to do with games of chance. If you desire to make your damnation doubly sure and ruin both body and soul, go to the gaming table. But if not, avoid it. Pass by it. Look not at it, for it has a basilisk's eye and may entice you. It has the sting of an adder and will certainly destroy you if you come beneath its deadly influence. From Baden-Baden we went to Freiburg, afterwards to Schaffhausen. And there for the first time we saw the Alps. Oh, it was a wonderful sight, though in the dim distance we hardly knew whether we saw clouds or mountains. We had to hold a sort of controversy with ourselves. Is that solid, that glittering whiteness, that sunny shimmering that we see there? Is it a bank of white mist? Is it cloud or is it a mountain? Soon you are sure that you're actually beholding the everlasting hills. If a man does not feel like praising God at such a moment, I do not think there's any grace in him. If there be anything like piety in a man's soul when he sees those glorious works of God, he'll begin to praise the Lord and magnify his holy name. We went from Schaffhausen to Zurich. Everywhere there was something to delight us. The magnificent falls of the Rhine, the clear blue waters of the Zurich Lake, the distant mountains, the ever-changing costumes of the people, all kept us wide awake and gratified our largest love of novelties. All nature presented us with a vast entertainment, and every turn of the head introduced us to something new and beautiful. At Zurich I saw in the great fair what I also saw at Baden-Baden, a, a sight which gave me pleasure, namely the little star of truth shining brightly amid the surrounding darkness. Opposite the house at Baden, where Satan was ruining souls at the gaming table,
there was a stall at which an agent of the Bible Society was selling Bibles and Testaments. I went up and bought a Testament of him and felt quite cheered to see the little battery erected right before the fortifications of Satan. For I felt in my soul it was mighty through God to the pulling down of the stronghold. And then in the midst of the fair at Zurich, where the people were selling all manner of things, as at John Bunyan's Vanity Fair, there stood a humble-looking man with his stall, upon which there were Bibles, Testaments, and Mr. Ryle's tracts. It's always a great comfort to me to see my sermons in French and other languages sold at the same shops as the writings of that excellent man of God. There's the simple gospel in his tracts, and they are, to my knowledge, singularly owned of God. How sweet it is to see these dear brethren in other churches loving our Lord and honored by him. At Lucerne, we spent our third Sabbath day. Of all days in the year, Sabbath days on the continent are the most wretched, so far as the public means of grace are concerned. This one, however, was spent in quiet worship in our own room. Our first Sabbath was a dead waste, for the service at church was lifeless, spiritless, graceless, and powerless. Even the grand old prayers were so badly read that it was impossible to be devout while hearing them. And the sermon upon the justice of God in destroying the Canaanites was as much adapted to convert a sinner or to edify a saint as Burke's Peerage or Walker's Dictionary. There was nothing, however, uh, puceistical or heretical, Catholic in nature. Far worse was our second Sunday in Baden, which effectually prevented my attending Episcopal service again until I can be sure of hearing truthful doctrine. The preacher was manifestly a downright Puseyite, because during one part of the service he must go up to the Roman Catholic altar and there bow himself with his back to us. The images and idols were not concealed in any way. There they were in all their open harlotry, and I must say they were in full keeping with the sermon which was inflicted upon us. The preacher thought he would give us a smart hit, so he began with an attack upon all who did not subscribe to baptismal regeneration and sacramental efficacy. He did not care what we might say. He was certain that when the holy drops fell from the fingers of God's ordained minister, regeneration there and then took place. I thought, well, that is coming out, and the man is more honest than some of the wolves in sheep's clothing who hold baptismal regeneration but will not openly confess it. The whole sermon through, he treated us to sacramental efficacy and made some allusion to St. George's riots, saying that it was an awful thing that the servants of God were subjected to persecution. And then he told us we had not sufficient respect for our ministers, that the real ordained successors of the apostles were trodden down as mire, in the streets. I abstained from going to church after that, and if I were to continue for seven years without the public means of grace, unless I knew that a man of kindred spirit with Mr. Allen, Mr. Cadman, J.C. Ryle, and, and that holy brotherhood of evangelicals would occupy the pulpit, I never would enter an Anglican church again. These Puseyites make good churchmen turn to the dissenters, and we who already dissent are driven further and further from the establishment. I'm going to stop here and 
spell out this word PUSEY, P-U-S-E-Y. You can check this out yourself. These are people who are definitely leaning toward Roman Catholicism within the Anglican Church. I guess you picked up on that already. In the name of our Protestant religion, I ask whether a minister of the Church of England is allowed to bow before the altar of a popish church. Is there no rule or canon which restrains men from such an outrage upon our professed faith, such an insult to our Constitution? In the church at Lucerne, I, I think they had the head of John the Baptist with some of the blood in a dish and other relics innumerable. Yet I was expected to go on Sunday and worship there. I could not do it, for I should have kept on thinking of John the Baptist's head in the corner. Though I have a great respect for that Baptist and all other Baptists, I do not think I could have controlled myself sufficiently to worship God under uh, such circumstances. Uh, we went up the Rizzi, as everybody must do who visits the Alps, toiling up, up, up ever so high to see the sun go to bed, and then we were awakened in the morning with a dreadful blowing of horns to get up and see the sun rise. Out we went, but his gracious majesty, the sun, would not condescend to show himself, or at least he had been up a half an hour before we knew it, and so we all went down again, and, and that was the end of our glorious trip. Yet it was worthwhile to go up to see that great mountain all around us. It was a sight which might make an angel stand and gaze and gaze again. The various sharp or rounded peaks and snowy summits and, and all worthy of the toil of which brings them into view. And the circular panorama seen from the Rigicombe is perhaps unrivaled. There's the Lake of Zug and there the long arms of Lucerne, yonder Mount Pilatus, further yet the Black Forest Range. Just at your feet is the buried town of Goldau, a sad tomb in which a multitude were crushed by a falling mountain. The height is dizzy to unaccustomed brains, but the air is bracing, and the prospect such as one might picture from the tops of Pisgah, where the prophet of Horeb breathed out his soul to God. Well, we went here and there and everywhere and saw everything that was to be seen, and at last, after a long journey, we came to Geneva. I had received the kindest invitation from our esteemed and excellent brother, Dr. D'Abagnet. He came to meet me at the station, but he missed me. I met a gentleman in the street, and I told him I was Mr. Spurgeon. He then said, come to my house, the very house where Calvin used to live. So I went home with him. After we found the doctor and Pastor Bard, and I was taken to the house of Mr. Lombard, an eminent banker of the city and a godly and gracious man. I think I never enjoyed a time more than I did with those real, true-hearted brethren. There are, you know, two churches there, the established and the free. And there has been some little bickering and some little jealousy, but I think it's all dying away. At any rate, I saw none of it, for brethren from both these churches came and showed me every kindness and honor. Now, I'm not superstitious. But the first time I saw this medal bearing the venerated likeness of John Calvin, I kissed it, imagining that no one saw the action. I was very greatly surprised when I received this magnificent present, which shall be passed around for your inspection, and I see in front of me now on the page two big circles that are totally black, <laughs> and it's supposed to be the coin front and back, but uh, the picture didn't come out too well. 
On the one side is John Calvin with his visage worn by disease and deep thought. On the other side is a, a verse fully applicable to him. It says, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This sentence truly describes the character of that glorious man of God. Among all those who have been born of women, there has not risen a greater than John Calvin. No age before him ever produced his equal. No age afterwards has seen his rival. In theology, he stands alone, shining like a bright fixed star, while other leaders and teachers can only circle around him at a great distance, as comets go streaming through space, with nothing like his glory or his permanence. Calvin's fame is eternal because of the truth he proclaimed, and even in heaven, although we shall lose the name of the system of doctrine which he taught, it shall be that truth which shall make us strike our golden harps and sing unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. For the essence of Calvinism is that we are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I preached in the cathedral at Geneva, and I thought it a great honor to be allowed to stand in the pulpit of John Calvin. I do not think half the people understood me, but they were very glad to see and join in heart with the worship in which they could not join with the understanding. I did not feel very happy when I came out in full canonicals. Uh, that's dressed up a certain way. But the request was put to me in such a beautiful way that I... I could have worn the Pope's tiara if by so doing I could have preached the gospel the more freely. They said, our dear brother comes to us from another country. Now, when an ambassador comes from another land, he has the right to wear his own costume at court. But as a mark of great esteem, he sometimes condescends to the manners of the people he is visiting and wears their court dress. Well, I said, yes, uh, that I will, certainly, if, if you do not require it, but merely ask it as a token of my Christian love. I shall feel like uh, running in a sack, but it will be your fault. It was John Calvin's gown, and that reconciled me to it very much. I do love that man of God, suffering all his life long, enduring not only persecutions from without, but a complication of disorders from within and yet serving his master with all his heart. I ask your prayers for the church at Geneva. That little republic stands now like an island, as it were, on each side shut in by France. And I can assure you there are no greater anti-Frenchmen or Galicians in the whole world than the Genovese. Without knowing that I trod upon tender ground, I frequently said, Why, you are almost French people. At last they hinted to me, uh, that they did not like me to say so, and I did not say it any more. They're afraid of being Frenchified. They cannot endure the thought of it. They know the sweets of liberty and cannot bear that they should be absorbed into that huge monarchy. Dr. Aubigny charged me with this message. He said, stir up the Christians of England to make Geneva a matter of special prayer. We do not dread the arms of France nor invasion but something worse than that, namely the introduction of French principles. There is a French population constantly crossing the border. They bring in infidelity and neglect of the Sabbath day, 
and Romanism is making very great advances. The brethren said, ask the people to pray for us that we may stand firm and true. As we have been the mother of many churches, desert us not in the hour of our need, but hold us up in your arms and pray that the Lord may still make Geneva a praise throughout the earth. Well, after the service in the cathedral, it was arranged for me to meet the ministers. Daubigny was there, of course, and César Malan, and most of the noted preachers of Switzerland. We spent a very delightful evening together, talking about our common Lord and of the progress of his work in England and on the continent. And when they bade me goodbye, every one of those ministers, a hundred and fifty, or perhaps two hundred of them, kissed me on both cheeks. Well, it was rather an ordeal for me, but it was meant to express their esteem and regard, and I accepted it in the spirit in which it was given. It was a peculiar pleasure to me to have the opportunity of visiting that great center of earnest Protestantism and of meeting so many of the godly and faithful men who had helped to keep the lamp of truth burning brightly. To my dying day, I shall remember those servants of Jesus Christ who greeted me in my master's name and loved me for my master's sake. Hospitality unbounded, love and unalloyed, communion undisturbed are precious pens with which the brethren in Geneva wrote their names on my heart. At last we got away from Geneva and went off to Chamonix. What a glorious place that is. My heart flies thither in recollection of her glories. The very journey from Geneva to Chamonix fires one's heart. The mind longs to climb the heavens as those mountains do. It seemed to sharpen my soul's desires and longings until, like the peaks of the Alps, I could pierce the skies. I cannot speak as if I, uh, as I should if I had one of those mountains in view. If I could point out of the window and say, There, see its frosted brow, see its ancient hoary head, and then speak to you of the avalanches that come rattling down the side, then I think I would give you some poetry. We went up the Mer de Glace on mules. I had the great satisfaction of hearing three or four avalanches come rolling down like thunder. In descending, I was in advance and alone. I sat down and mused, but I soon sprang up, for I thought the avalanche was coming right on me. There was such a tremendous noise. We crossed many places where the snow, in rushing down from the top, had swept away every tree and every stone, and left nothing but the stumps of the trees, and a kind of slide from the top of the mountain to the very valley. What extraordinary works of God there are to be seen there. We have no idea of what God himself is. As I went among those mountains and valleys, I, I felt like a little creeping insect. I sank lower and lower and grew smaller and smaller, while my soul kept crying out, Great God, how infinite art thou! What worthless worms are we! After leaving Chamonix, we came at last to what was to be the great treat of our journey, namely the passage of the Simplon. The crossing of that mountain is an era in any man's life. That splendid road was carried over the Alps by Napoleon, not for the good of his species, but in order that he might transport his cannon to fight against Austria. Sir James Mackintosh described the Simplon Road as the most wonderful of useful works. There are other works which may contain more genius, some which may seem to be more grand. 
But this, in the midst of the rugged, stern simplicity of nature, seemed to say, man is little, but over God's greatest works can man find a pathway, and no dangers can confine his ambition. Where the rock was so steep that the road could not be made by any other means, workmen were hung down from the top in cradles, and they chipped a groove and thus carried the road along the precipitous face of the rock. Frequently, too, it was made to run through a huge tunnel cut in the solid rock. On and on we went up the enormous height until we came to the region of perpetual frost and snow. There one could make snowballs in the height of summer and gather ice in abundance. On the top of the mountain stands the hospice. There were some four or five monks who came out and asked us to enter, and we did so, and would honor the religious feeling which dictates each constant hospitality. We were shown into a very nice room where there was cake and wine ready, and if we had chosen to order it, meat and soup and anything we liked to have and nothing to pay. They entertain any traveler, and he is expected to pay nothing whatever for his refreshment. Of course, no one who could afford it would go away without putting something into the poor box. It pleased me to find that they were Augustinian monks, because next to Calvin, I love Augustine. <laughs> I feel that Augustine's works were the great mine out of which Calvin dug his mental wealth. And the Augustinian monks, in their acts of charity, seemed to say, Our master was a teacher of grace, and we will practice it, and give to all comers whatsoever they shall need, without money and without price. Those monks are worthy of great honor. There they are, spending the best and noblest period of their lives on the top of a bleak and barren mountain, that they may minister to the necessities of the poor. They go out in the cold nights, bring in those that are frostbitten. They dig them out from under the snow, simply that they may serve God by helping their fellow men. I pray God to bless the good work of these monks of the Augustinian order, and may you and I carry out the spirit of Augustine, which is the true spirit of Christ, the spirit of love, the spirit of charity, the spirit which loves truth, and the spirit which loves man, and above all loves the man Christ Jesus. We never need fear. With our strong doctrines and the spirit of our master in us, we shall be carried away by the heresies which continually arise and which would deceive, if it were possible, even the very elect. If any of you can save up money, after this tabernacle is paid for, uh, to go to Switzerland, you'll never regret it. And it need not be expensive to you. If you do not find your head grow on both sides, you have to put your hands up and say, I feel as if my brains are straining with their growth. I do not think you have many brains to spare. As I have stood in the midst of those mountains and valleys, I have wished I could carry you all there. I cannot reproduce to you the thoughts that then passed through my mind. I cannot describe the storms we saw below us that, when we were on the top of the hill. I can't tell you about the locusts that came in clouds and devoured everything before them. Time would utterly fail me to speak of all the wonders of God which we saw in nature and in providence. One more remark, and I'm done. If you cannot travel... Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is more glorious than, than all else that you could ever see. Get a view of Christ, and you have seen more than mountains and cascades and valleys 
and seas can ever show you. Thunders may bring their sublimest uproar and lightnings their awful glory. Earth may give its beauty and stars their brightness, but all these put together can never rival him of whom Dr. Watts so well sang, quote, Now to the Lord a noble song. Awake, my soul, awake, my tongue. Hosanna to the eternal name and all his boundless love proclaim. See where it shines in Jesus' face, the brightest image of his grace. God in the person of his Son has all his mightiest works outdone. The spacious earth and spreading flood proclaim the wise and powerful God, and thy rich glories from afar sparkle in every rolling star. But in his looks a glory stands, the noblest labor of thine hands. The pleasing luster of his eyes outshines the wonders of the skies. Grace, tis a sweet, a charming theme. My thoughts rejoice at Jesus' name. Ye angels, dwell upon the sound. Ye heavens, reflect it to the ground. End of quote. An end of his message on that occasion. And in the course of that day, a total of 1,000 pounds was added to the Tabernacle Building Fund. During the time that the great sanctuary was being completed, the remainder of the amount required was raised so that the first Sabbath services in the new house of prayer were conducted in a building entirely free from debt. Thus ends the first half of this autobiography. A man of 26 years, he's not yet to the halfway point in his life, so we're going to see a lot of good stuff packed into those last two volumes. While you have a little time this week, as I said, I won't be doing anything further in Sermon Audio this week. We'll, we'll just take the week off. But you can browse around if you need to or want to. Uh, got the works of other great men of God on this site. Got a lot of North Korea audios that might be helpful for you to go to and, and see what's there and pray over them. I, I've done a whole study on the Quran and Muhammad. I've done many prophecy studies. I've gone through the whole Bible a couple times, commentaries. I've written books. Um, do check it out if you have the time. And if you want to know a little more about me personally, go to Facebook. And then I'm also at YouTube. You can just type in there, Bob from Hackberry House, and you can do some videos while you're over there. Criesfromamonguss.com is the written portion of the ministry. And uh, it deals with the cries that rise from the church to the ears of God. We haven't got a full agenda over there yet, but we're working on it. Well, anyway, I'll see you, Lord willing, in a week or so. That's This is June 6, D-Day, 2020. Don't forget that, um, oh, I said this coming Friday. I'm very sorry. Uh, not this coming Friday, but a week from this coming Friday, June the 19th, June the 19th, Charles Spurgeon's birthday. God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we'll talk in about a week or so. Bye-bye.